Hi, welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing community, work, and creativity in different ways to get you to happiness. I'm your host, Janet McKenna Lowry. Dan Harris was, or is, and I'm not sure which, an anchor on Nightline and Good Morning America. A couple of years ago, he wrote a book with the catchy title, 10% Happier, and a super extended subtitle, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Actually Works, A True Story. Harris is a kind of prototypical high-anxiety, high-achiever. As he got further and further up the ladder of his career, he was doing cocaine, behind the scenes, getting more and more uh, self-involved. He was admittedly a jerk to people. In fact, bosses and coworkers were known to take him aside and say, nobody likes you, which doesn't help somebody who's already so insecure. But he also started to get panic attacks and ultimately got one while he was on air. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting, oh, and that was a warning sign for him. But one of the things I thought was fascinating about this was that we get to see the backstage of these entertainment-y news shows. And the whole work setup of them is really unexpectedly like hostile to mental health for the mental health of the people who work there. It's a terrible workplace. And honestly, no wonder they were hit. They've been hit all over the place by me too. Hashtag me too. Because places that have poor behavior against women and minorities and LGBTQ plus and any any of these groups are going to come out of places that are led poorly and that are structured poorly because obviously a place that has good structure is a place that deals with its a-holes right up front. There's actually another book I'll review at some point called Get Rid of the A-Holes or something like that. That's just like how to hire. Instead, in, in some of these places, it seems like everything just gravitates maybe just through sheer charisma and and force of personality to the point where everything orbits the a-hole and nobody has the leadership to address that. I, it made me think a lot about Saturday Night Live, too. Saturday Night Live has appalling workplace structure. The hours that they work are incredibly late. They do the same kind of thing that this guy Harris talks about. They all fight inter inside the company like they're not their rivals aren't other companies their rivals are their own company and they fight with each other about getting airtime and then every bit of airtime they get depends on the whim of a head personality like Peter Jennings or Ted Koppel or Lauren Michaels and it's all set up in this weird feudal system of pleasing the king so all the reporters jockey comedians jockey and flatter and they pit against each other non-stop. And that's not to say that there's nothing good about Peter Jennings. Maybe he's trained some excellent reporters. It's just that this kind of system is the definition of unsustainable. It's really easily corrupted. And triple whammy, it magnifies the worst aspects of the king's personality and biases. 
So the workers, in this case, the reporters, are in a constant state of anxiety over stuff like their hair, which anxiety contributes to baldness. So that's the added thing about it, but also their weight, their looks, everything. And as if that weren't bad enough, it used to be that you had to be one of those people who sat down and wrote a letter back criticizing a anchor or reporter. And now with social media, they just get an avalanche of people who are critical about things like you put your elbow on the desk, you lean to the left too much, I don't like that shirt. I mean, some of the stuff just gets to the point of, I don't know, maybe, maybe rather than having the targets read and monitor this kind of stuff, which it sounds like they're expected to do, maybe you should hire people who filter and say, okay, this is a legitimate piece of feedback and this is not. You know, just people who, for whom it wouldn't have to take a toll every time. Because the weird thing about this is that besides the well-documented fact that this kind of feudal workplace is appalling, these systems don't actually produce great work either. News reporting now is objectively worse in style and content than it was a generation or two ago. And I know it's very complex and there are many, many factors that go into this. However, this structure does not make that better. If you take a weekend, probably when you have the flu or something like that, and watch a ton of 10 or 15 year old SNL clips, most of them are garbage. Oh, not clips, sorry, full episodes. The clips are the ones that were quotable. And it's only a small percentage of any given episode. So this whole working late, the whole, I mean, story after story after story about the human debris left over from SNL, the, the cocaine addictions and deaths, the alcoholism. I get that it's the system there is, but that doesn't make it a good system. And more importantly, other places don't have that brutal a system and produce astonishingly great comedy. Strangely enough, there's a pair of, well, they're young men now, but they started when they were teenagers in Norway, whose comic show in English is phenomenal. And I don't think they break Norway's strict worker rules to produce it. The UK has strict worker rules and they just adapt and the comedy is often way superior and way more consistent because it turns out that breaking your workers does not make them do better work and if it does then it's in the very very short term and it's a terrible price to pay so the news organizations also will send reporters to actual war without really mitigating the effects like they they still have to fight for airtime they still have to feud for airtime even as they are standing there in their protective gear on the ground in a war zone so they already have this incredibly noxious home life and then they go away to a terribly scary very post-traumatic stress-inducing situation they're civilians they don't really have support. They're expected to gather news, come back to the same awful workplace, and perform. 
So the book was really enlightening to read that these real rivalries are between coworkers and not between channels or, you know, production companies. It's crazy. And these types of workplaces, I won't say they don't produce excellent reporters or excellent comedians or whatever they do, but it doesn't follow that this kind of hazing is required or the only way or even the best way to get excellent, sustainable work out of someone. Anyway, Harris stays in his crazy workplace going from war correspondent to culture war, evangelical religious correspondence, and feeding into the whole loud media on that. But eventually he finds it unsatisfying and stumbles over other religious stories, which brings him into the orbit of people like Eckhart Tolle. Tolle is, I would call him new agey. He's a writer and a speaker. He's been on Oprah. And he talks pretty clearly about how anxiety is worry about the future and depression is worry about the past. And both needlessly drain you of energy, so you should learn to meditate. And honestly, I completely agree with it. It's a bit simplistic, and you may need other kinds of help. In fact, if you have severe anxiety or severe depression, you will need other kinds of help. But it certainly doesn't hurt and certainly does make things better. I'm not a huge, huge fan. I think a lot of other people have said the same thing. And honestly, there's a vibe about Tole that does not align with me. But the upshot is the same. Getting to know your inward self will help you. Quiet time, reflection time will help you. Avoidance of these things will hurt you. And then from Tolle, Harris goes to Deepak Chopra, who's kind of all sizzle and repackages the same stuff, but with a lot more jazz hands and yelling. And this part was really interesting to me because a couple years ago, I got to know someone who worked at an organization that did meditation seminars and brought in superstars from all over the world all the time, like Marianne Williamson, who was that kind of kooky lady that ran for president, and the Dalai Lama, who's kind of mysterious, but just a ton of others. And this woman's hot tea was that a lot of these people are really good at that kind of marketing and selling, and that behind the scenes, they are deeply nasty pieces of work. And I'm not saying specifically Williamson or the Dalai, but a lot of the kind of quasi-royalty names kind of behavior. And it's really incongruous to think about these people being so peace and love TM, being absolutely dreadful and abusive to the staff, which, by the way, I've heard about Oprah as well. So he goes, you know, from these extensions of this same kind of thing. You're going to find these setups anywhere, but it's very interesting. So it goes down the rabbit hole with people who are like Chopra, but then more venial and can kind of compare and contrast because according to him, there's people who package this up so well. And actually, you've seen this, right? This is the part that turns everybody off and and is a turnoff about tiptoeing into these into the good parts of these waters is that so easily it gets you to the people who are saying, don't take medicine for your tumor and instead just you know, buy my course and feel happier. And and that's a terrible disservice and obnoxious and awful. And nobody wants to be around those people. So he kind of puts everybody on a better continuum, which is kind of interesting. Anyway, Harris has like specific times now where he actually feels that thing where he's in the moment 
and not consumed by anxiety, which makes him want more of them. And he meets a Jewish Buddhist therapist who tells him he should go on a 10-day retreat, which he refuses to do. And actually, one of the things that I find really, really engaging about this book is Harris's skeptics skeptic. I, too, find the New Age hippie trappings deeply off-putting and way too, I'm just going to lift this all from a different culture and sell it while I wear robes and chant kind of thing. And he is really clear about how it felt that mindfulness was going to help. And then when he started doing it, it felt that it did help, but then it didn't help, but then it did help and, and that it's waves. So a lot of skepticism about the fact of the meditation and mindfulness itself, but also the people who want to make a living doing it. He's pretty straightforward about the kinds of concerns that certainly I had about it. And meanwhile, he's aging in this doggy dog reporter world while fresh faces pour in and get jobs every week. So what this all makes me think about, especially when I think about places like SNL, is that one of the most intriguing and interesting people I've ever met, and I hope someday to get her on this show, is a woman in the UK who produces rap artists. She is incredibly good at what she does. Her name is Claire. And she's got a very clear mandate, a real differentiation from all the other producers. Because as one of her artists, your trajectory will not be abrupt. Your success will not be overnight. She's very upfront about this. Because instead, you'll be able to continue being a healthy human being with dignity. And you will have the support of a healthy support system of family and friends. So while you won't have this atmospheric rise, you won't have all the really awful stuff that happens to people when they have that. You will be able to be a successful artist for much, much longer because you won't flame out because she has taken care of you and taken care of fostering the support system around you. You won't be losing yourself and your time into drug addiction. You won't burn out. And that's her deal. And she is almost entirely unique. She's a unicorn in the music industry. And I have to say, apparently the U.S. news industry as well. No one's doing that for these people. So Harris goes to a meditation conference where Epstein is speaking and he's really suspicious because some of the guests are doing a lot of bowing and namaste and bell ringing and they just tell you to love yourself. But what he likes about this first sort of foray into a weekend thing is that this guy Epstein gets up and says, no, you don't have to make yourself love yourself. But observing your own thoughts, even the ones where you don't love yourself, will relieve them a lot. Because the more you fight something, the more power you give it. And I was kind of impressed with Harris here because, I mean, I've begun meditating. I started like three or four years ago and it has helped a whole lot. I can't imagine having the added work of journaling what's happened when I meditate. Like, I don't know how I could both let it go and remember what I let go to write it down afterwards. But he does. And it's really fun to read because I recognize that same swirl of when I've tried to get quiet, which is to say, it's been impossible fairly often to get quiet. And good teachers understand that being quiet is the goal, but actually just attempting to get quiet is part of that goal. But it really gets going when he does a meditation retreat. So he's now met 
three or four people who told him to go to a 10-day meditation retreat, and he finally gives in and does it. It's 10 days of silence, no reading, vegetarian meals, no phone. The day starts at 5 a.m., ends at 10 p.m., and contains a solid 10 hours of different kinds of meditation. There's walking meditation, seated meditation, listening meditation, all these different kinds. And he has to remember all day what he's going to write. And honestly, the book really delighted me about this because he's incredibly squirrely. And I recognize that so much. I've done one and two day meditation retreats. And boy, yeah, it's incredibly boring. I have ADHD. I'm assuming from the writing. So does Harris. It is a big ask to endure the boredom like this. But it's also the actual point. And for a silent meditation retreat, there's actually a fair amount of talking from the people who lead it. And I've thought about this a lot because I've read about it in various places and I've seen clips of these kinds of retreats and they kind of have a lecture thing going on every day. And I've come to the conclusion that it's really about the fact that a room full of people are all going to come at different levels of readiness for these concepts and different levels of ability to absorb these concepts. So I think that a lot of these gurus or whatever, or at least the good ones, just say the same thing a zillion different ways, a zillion different times, because at some point you are going to take in the right thing at the right time, and that could give your brain the release that it needs. Harris really suffers through this retreat. He gets spit pooling in his mouth all the time, and he complains about that. His joints are achy from the sitting. He coughs. He fidgets. And one of the days is his birthday, and he has to spend it driving himself nuts and eating vegetables (laughs) and being silent. So sad. But then... Like halfway through in one of the sort of the conversations he has with the leaders, they tell him he is trying too hard and he hears that and then it just all relieves and lifts. He can feel the spit, swallow it and still know he'll be okay. Feel the numb feet and notice it and still know he'll be okay. And not to get super wound up in what it all means. And he has a liberating emotional release for a couple days. But then, interestingly, again, why I love this book, it goes away. And he gets pissed about it going away. And for the final meeting with the leader of the retreat, it turns out this is exactly how it works. Meditation and mindfulness won't necessarily get you somewhere, but it gives your operating system a break. Doing it is better for you than not doing it, even if you don't see the kind of concrete results that some of the hucksters are selling. So, and even the retreats themselves will sort of market themselves as being this peaceful thing. You may not experience peace there, but attempting it is still better for your brain than not attempting it. And The piece on the next to last day that hits Harris right where it counts. Again, you have to be in the right headspace at the right time to hear the right thing, because I'm sure a thousand people said this a thousand different ways before he finally took it in. And it's the phrase, is this thought useful? And what he was talking about was like, 
What if I have to, you know, run through the airport to make my flight when I leave here? And the guy said, sure, it's it's worth it to spare a thought about catching your flight. But on the 17th go round, is this really useful? And it reminds Harris about how his father used to say in, in that kind of parental, you know, you kind of want to spare your kids. His father used to say, worry was the price of security. He actually brings that up a kind of a couple times in the in the book. And it screwed him up, honestly, that phrase. It's like this mistaken, well-meaning programming that parents and teachers often pass on, but end up creating a monster in the kid's mind because it's to protect you from what I went through, but it distorts now how the kid moves through the world. And it keeps them on this negative side of the tracks for as long as they unconsciously believe it. And kids believe so much of what we tell them in their early years. And so he considers this one sentence, like, is it actually useful to be the biggest thing he gets out of this retreat? So after that, Harris goes back to his insane workplace and is immediately passed over for promotion. And he ends up being told he's never going to make it. He looks wrong. He sounds wrong. It's pretty, again, it's pretty cruel. It's, it's everything I hate about workplaces. It's, it's everything I hope for change because Here's someone with a lot to contribute, but instead of focusing on how he can contribute, it's setting him up to want and aim for something and then kicking him down from it and then expecting him to be happy and healthy as a result. And that's bananas. Nobody's like that. No human being is like that. So everyone around him is now, he's not blissed out anymore from this, from this 10 day thing. It kind of, he had a high and then he kind of came off it, but everyone around him is now passively aggressively going on about him, about this 10 day retreat. Like his family's like, that's what you did for your vacation. And his coworkers are like, oh, so now you've joined a cult. And it just adds to like, you know, he just had this great experience He wants to kind of keep it with him, but he can't because everyone around him is judging. And finally, he blurts out to somebody like after being asked for the millionth time, he says, look, I do it because it makes me 10 percent happier. So roll credits. And that does it because with that, he's finally able to find a way to explain the whole experience to himself and to others in a way that saves face, in a way that keeps his dignity. And that ends up sending him out on a whole new kind of career, one where he connects with people like him, like me, who needs the break that meditation gives without necessarily needing to completely immerse in a lifestyle. Honestly, reading this book sold me on the 10-day thing, something I never would have given consideration to in the past. I know they exist. They have them, you know, within... There are a couple famous places within 25 miles of Amherst, Massachusetts. They exist. Now, I know being able to go at all is a privilege, although bear in mind, they're usually free for first timers. They're paid for by donations from people who have gone and gotten a lot out of it. And actually, quite honestly, that system should tell you a lot about the effectiveness of it. If After you've gone on one of these, you turn around and you say, that was terrific and donate enough that someone else can go. That's pretty impressive, I have to say. (laughs) In any case, but they're free for first time attendees. 
but you do have to be able to give up 10 days worth of pay, you know, or seven or eight, I guess, if you're not counting weekends and have 10 days, you can be absent from your life. But I think part of the thing about that is if that doesn't describe you right now, it may describe you sometime in the future. Maybe there'll be a time when you're suffering some unemployment, which on the one hand is hugely stressful. On the other hand, what better way to respond to it than like taking some time to heal how your brain works? That would be like a really productive and sort of ironically productive, but a really useful way to spend your time. And since I read this book two years ago, I've been on the lookout for that time because I didn't have it right away either. And then, of course, when I started to think maybe I would, we had a pandemic, so there's no way to fit it in. But also remember that while a 10-day retreat might be helpful, it's not mandatory. All the guidance, this book included, all of this is available online from the library, on YouTube, and all sorts of other places for free. It's not really about the selling. It's not really about the product. It's really about being a human, fully being a human. This stuff predates capitalism by so long that this stuff is, that all these concepts are available and they're available in a ton of different cultural formats because it's not just one group or another that's ever discovered this stuff how to quiet your mind, the need to quiet your mind, the need to take the time to quiet your mind, the need to find out where your energy is going and whether or not that's an appropriate place for your energy to be going. All those things have been around forever. We just don't, we've lost connection with it. And capitalism and marketing, they don't want you to be connected with it. Somebody pointed out about this pandemic, something that I think is really incredibly interesting. One of the reasons we're addressing deep social problems right now during this pandemic is because for the first time in about 100 years, we've been locked down and enforced to quiet time. Our distractions have been reduced and obviously not eliminated. I've watched as much Netflix as anybody else but they have been very much reduced across the board. And those things are, on an individual level, of course, important, but on a collective level, astonishing. And it has given us a sort of new path that we can go on that's pretty intriguing and has a lot of potential, but was really only made possible by the free time that we've had. We're not most, most of us, I should say, and, and, and again, the collective, most of us, a lot of us are not. And, and if we're doing it now, we had a time where we didn't commute. There was a long time where we didn't, we still don't go out. We don't distract ourselves nearly as much during this time. Something that we hate. We are very wired toward, uh, towards novelty. And the worst aspects of a society want you to be distracted all the time so that you don't step back, so that you don't have the time to do a deep think about your part in the worst parts of society, so that you don't listen to yourself and to others in that order. That is how 
bad systems continue. It'd be interesting to see whether any self-reflection goes into some of these terrible workplaces. I would love to see it. So all of this, though, is for free. All this stuff is for free and has been for a long time. You can find, you can read really old stuff, really new stuff, and it's gonna both be versions of the same stuff, most of it. So eventually Harris starts to delve into the science of meditation, which I am very happy with as well. Because while I don't begrudge a brain hack that works just because it works, like I'm a real believer in the, well, I would be in in the placebo effect, but the reason I believe in it is because there's a lot of science behind it. And ironically, the science behind it says, hey, it turns out that our brains do a lot of interesting stuff when they're making things up. So the placebo effect is absolutely real and has been documented many times. And sometimes you can get away with stuff, uh, with medicines and with treatments that aren't really a treatment at all, but were given to you with authority and you get better because it turned out to be the social structure of receiving the treatment. Sometimes it's just someone paying attention will allow you to relieve the severity of something. And obviously, I'm not talking about deep illnesses that require medication. I'm talking about those ones that are sort of reluctant to heal or mysterious. And I will say about those deep illnesses, those also do much better along with meditation, along with mindfulness, in some ways, along with the kind of with the placebo effect. It improves outcomes for people who don't have deep illnesses and they can't find a medication. It improves outcomes for people who do need medication and do need medical attention and also do better by improving their thought processes by pulling out of rumination, which is that thinking for thinking's sake. It's kind of a, uh, an anxiety response. All of that helps, even if you are like deeply ill with something that requires known medical intervention. So just the brain is just astonishing with this kind of stuff. And it, it just always improves if you give it quiet time. There's no downside. And the amount of energy you expend in dumb stuff, like getting mad about things, you end up retaining, reclaiming that energy, being able to use it for other things like building a relationship. Everything about it's sort of a double whammy positive. You don't waste energy getting angry and you don't waste relationships that got ruined because you got angry. And that's just one small, tiny version of this. So I love. I love the fact that he has data that holds all this stuff up. And that's been, in recent years, that's been a real focus of certain medical schools and certain research universities is to say, well, wait a minute, is there this thing that's free that turns out to be better for everybody pretty much across the board all the time? What was really interesting is the Marines apparently are doing this too. And a little ironic because... They found that it made them better soldiers, which I find a bit sad, but I mean, okay, better than not, I guess. 
And it definitely helps protect them against the worst injuries of being in conflict because there is that. There's going to be conflict no matter what. So teaching people to deal with it better is a net positive. But also schools and then places like MIT have been really paying attention to the health benefits. And coming into the final bit of the book, I really like this concept. We're all really familiar with trigger warnings. If you're not, it's the little preamble when you're going to talk about something really distressing because people out there in the world who have had that distressing thing happen may have a terrible reaction to it. it I mean, honestly, it's like it's like announcing on your menu that something contains peanuts because there may be someone with a peanut allergy in your party. So that's what trigger warnings are. They're made fun of a lot, but in fact, they and sometimes they said that Maybe they help, maybe they don't. It is kind of a, like like the peanut allergy, it's kind of a kind thing to do. One of the things that Harris talks about are what I call glimmer signals, which is the opposite of a trigger warning. And that's what starts happening to him after the end of the retreat. He just starts to find his brain-jabbering lesson. And along with that, he starts to notice things like light, rippling off water as he walks by it or the sound of a bird and he just gets a few seconds of release and joy that's a glimmer signal and that and that's such a lovely thing to know that we don't have to be on the lookout for triggers we can be on the lookout for glimmers and those will strengthen us and that's one of the things that working on your operating system will do So I'd be interested in what you think. Give it a read. 10% Happier by Dan Harris. Not to be confused with Sam Harris, who he name checks in the book, who is a meditator and Buddhist guy. It's weird that they share the same last name and they're kind of similar in a lot of ways. But Daniel, Dan Harris. And see what you think. I'd love to know. And same question about meditating. If you've taken up meditation, Tell me what you think about it, what was hard, what was easy, whether it's something you've added to your life permanently or what. It's neat to hear from other people who have just started. You can get in touch with me on working9tothrive.com with the number nine. Next up, part two of my conversation with Matthew Kavanaugh, photographer and artist. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, community, and creativity. When you're doing day-to-day journalism and kind of grinding out a paper every day, you know, those pictures don't really have a longevity to them uh, or a lasting. They aren't lasting, really. Yeah. How interesting. It's it's interesting to think of something kind of going by that way, although I guess that's kind of journalism, too. I mean, it's the difference. I guess it becomes content. Yeah. I mean, some journalism stories like, you know, the Boston Globe Spotlight series on the Catholic Church, right. uh, that is part of history now. That's going to be read about and studied for years. But the 
the story like that I worked on this morning, you know, it'll be interesting and I'm, I'm, they do a good job and I'm sure people will read it, but it's not something that's going to last for years and years. So it's when you're putting out a paper every day, I think a lot of the, a lot of the stories, you know, are, it's the news of the day. Right. You know, I said sandcastles, but it's actually like making a meal too. You're going to need to eat tomorrow. Totally new food. Yeah, absolutely. So have you ever found uh, any temptation to explore moving pictures or is still kind of your, your metier and that's what you stay with? I've, I've explored it a little bit and the little, the little bit that I did made me realize that I'm probably not cut out to be an editor or even a video shooter. I, I feel like a lot of, a lot of, I just kind of dodged this bullet because if you worked, if you worked at a paper in over the last, you know, 10 years and you were a photographer, chances are you were asked to learn and shoot video. Right. I felt like I hear overlap all the time. Yeah. And the reason for that is that they wanted the newspapers wanted video clips to put on their website, which would then generate clicks and the clicks generate advertising and dollars. So they were asking photographers to shoot video and stills on the same assignment. And they're in, in many cases asking reporters to write the story, shoot stills and video all at once. Oh my God. That's a heavy load. Yeah. And it's impossible. I mean, it's, it's totally, well, it, it is, it is possible, but these one man band journalists like are so overworked and underpaid that it's just depressing to think about. I mean, it's, you know, I don't, I don't rely on, on journalism, photojournalism to pay my bills anymore. I, it's just not even, it's a tiny uh, amount of my annual income, mm-hmm. but I, I take the assignments whenever I can because I enjoy it and it's, and it's just fun. Like you can go out and the New York times, you know, doesn't call very often, but like they called twice already this year. And, you know, I did, I did assignments, you know, for them. And it's just interesting. You get, you get interesting, sent interesting places and you meet interesting people and, Mm. you know, you might not get paid a ton of money, but, Luckily, I don't have to rely on those calls anymore to make a living, mm. which I is the way it was before, you know. Yeah. So you, you, that moving piece, you were, you were kind of well established before that ask started to come in. Yes, and and I, you know, the little bit that I experimented w- with it, I got so bogged down in the editing that I felt that it would just take me. I mean, I already take too much time in editing my own work. So if I shoot a wedding, I shoot like 2,500 pictures, sometimes 3,000 pictures in a day. And then I sit down and try and cull that down to eight or 900 or 1,000 pictures. And just that process alone takes a long time. And then editing those images, you know, for color balance and cropping and that sort of thing takes even you know longer so when you come back with hours of video that raw video that you shot you then have to you know edit that and add music and sync the audio and all that stuff and i just feel like right 
it's so much work and some people are really, really good at it. Yeah. I'm not sure that I'm one of those people, but I never really got into it that much. And I've somehow managed to make a living at just still photography, you know, and I don't know, hopefully I can keep it going for a while longer, but it feels, you know, people have been saying that still photography is on its way out. Your entire career. That's one of the really interesting things about your trajectory. They've been saying it since the before digital, I, the beginning of the internet. It was like, oh, that's it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I remember when when high def video was introduced. The prediction was that journalists would always shoot video, and then they would just take frame grabs to use as still photos. But the reality is that the, the quality of a really well done uh, news photograph with a with a digital SLR is is superior in so many ways to that of a frame grab. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at frame grabs, you know it's a frame grab. Right. And it's partly because of the the technology and and you know the individual frames when you're shooting video and you you're looking at a stream of of images that your brain kind of stitches together almost and whereas a still photo on its stand on its own is a st stronger image generally speaking than you know I mean you can't you can't compare the sort of value of if plain bursts into flames or a helicopter bursts into flames and crash lands or something and you happen to be rolling video and you have really dramatic footage of that right in the news world i'm sure that's worth a lot more money than a single image of that but the process of making it and the in the in the usefulness of it is it just it really depends on what you know what you're doing with the images and the yeah, that's really interesting because you bring up an interesting point about the quality of the image. Like if it's it's almost like our eyes don't really want crappy quality, even though HD could give you a frame. Since it's not a deliberately sort of, I don't know, thoughtfully, you know, chosen frame, you can tell and then it doesn't speak to you as much. I think that's really interesting. It's almost like even though we could do cheaper ways, we kind of don't want to. Yeah, I, I think so. And it just hasn't panned out the way people predicted it would. And yeah. I mean, they also predicted the demise of the newspaper industry. And that kind of, in a way, that has happened. I mean, a lot of, lot of, of mid-size city newspapers have died. You know, many, 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 many journalists, you know, have, have lost their jobs. And in some ways, I feel like I got out at the right time. I'm not completely out because I still do it, but I don't rely on it from from to make a living anymore. Mm. And it makes me sad, though, because friends with a lot of journalists and keep in touch with those people through social media. And you you really hear about people losing their jobs. Right. And it's a bummer. But it's also, you know, you're you're losing part of democracy, you know. Right. And. We need journalism and good quality journalism more than ever right now because so much of it is just outright lies. Right. And yeah, manipulations. I do think it's interesting 
that, yeah, I came up in the same time and was discouraged from doing a lot of stuff that I wanted to do that turns out to still be around. But I also kind of felt like there was always a steady drumbeat of loss and not so much one of change. And I kind of feel like in retrospect, knowing this stuff was coming, it's a lot better to say, all right, it's changing. What do we do to prepare for like, how do we adapt to that rather than, oh, it's all lost. It's, you know, there's nothing we can do. This is what we do. We can't possibly change our focus or our business model. And, you know, it's just sort of interesting. I, I definitely... I think some of the ones that have sort of survived are the ones that were jumping on saying, all right, well, let's try this then. Let's, is there any alternative here to death? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, part of what happened, of course, is that in the beginning, all the newspapers started giving away their product for free online. Right. Because they were, they were trying to stay current and keep the viewership and the readership up. But yeah, that's right. Before they knew it, they were all giving it away for free. And now you have bigger newspapers. Well, most newspapers, you know, the, the Globe and the Washington Post and the New York Times, they all have paywalls now. And I think that, well, I don't know, you know, the, the sort of numbers, but it does seem like it is working to a certain extent. In that, in that people are paying for it and people are willing to pay for it and people are noticing the difference between an actual reputable news source right. and just a kind of BS website that's 70% ads and clickbait. Yeah. yeah. So, but there are people who don't clearly don't know the difference and don't care and I'm not sure what to do about them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what kind of community stuff are you involved in? Like, what do you find sort of hooks you up to the greater world? Although some of the stuff you're talking about, you go out and you sort of explore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my community, it's in terms of, you know, my actual community that I live in. You know, it's funny because we moved back from Washington, D.C. to Greenfield about nine and a half years ago. Ah. And we, so we're coming up on my son's ninth birthday and, and my wife was pregnant with, with him when we moved back. So we basically, I think we got here in February of 2010. So anyway, up until that point, I used to hear people say, you know, we want a sense of community or there is a sense of community in this place or in my hometown or we have, and it almost sounded like a cliche to me. Like people would throw that, that phrase around a lot, a sense of community. Yeah. And I never really thought much about it, but when we moved back here, we had a lot of friends who were both from this area. So we had a lot of friends. We kind of had an an established community to move back into. Mm. And we had, our older son, Jonah, who was, who was two at the time. So we moved back here and it was for the first time I actually felt like I was part of a community and where now, you know, Greenfield where I live, you know, we know so many people, we know so many families, so many families with kids and local business owners. And, you know, I'm a local business owner and, you know, it's one of those 
things where now, you know, I do actually feel connected to the community, you know, and, and that is really for the first time in my life. I guess I had a community, you know, before, like when I was in DC, there was a lot of photographers. We all worked together very closely. We would all photograph the same stuff together. That was a community too, but this feels like more of a community where, where you can actually help each other out and we pick up each other's kids from school and we, you know, support each other's businesses and we, we see each other out at, you know, Magpie or Hope and Olive. And it really feels nice to actually be part of a community. And I, you know, I guess I, until I found myself here, I, I didn't even really give much thought to community, but now I'm part of it, you know? Yeah, that's nice. And, that, you know, that part isn't, there is a creative connection, I think, though, because there are a lot of creative people in our community. So you keep in touch with people locally who are artists and musicians and stuff like that. And they know I'm a photographer. So a lot of times there's an art sort of festival happening in Turner's Falls. And Linda McInerney, who's really involved and super enthusiastic. My first podcast guest. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. She so, so she's helped putting this on and she connected me with the Mass Cultural Council and they hired me to photograph for a couple of hours. Oh, cool. Um, so I just, it's super cool, you know, and the last thing I did at the Shea Theater, like, was just volunteers because I had, I had friends who were in a show there with Joe DeLude who put on this great uh, show, Mr. Dragon, Carl, I don't know if you... <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're great. So I had a couple of friends who were in that show and I went to the dress rehearsal and I just took a bunch of photos and then we went to the show and I took a few more photos during the show and I just kind of put them out there and said, here you go, Linda, you know, you can do, you can post these, use them, whatever. Oh, nice. And that's just because I enjoy, I honestly enjoy doing that. I like helping out my friends, especially, you know, if someone's putting on a local art show, a, a play or a, a gallery show or, or their band is playing. No one's getting rich doing this. Right. You know, so that community for me is partly giving my own time and effort to help my friends who are trying to do their own thing. Yeah. And in this case, you know, I am getting paid for the job. So that's nice. And it's kind of a nice benefit because if someone's looking to hire a photographer, I know enough people that they're like, oh, you know, Matthew, he does, he does great work and he did photos for our show and blah, blah, blah. So you know, as a photographer, you, you always, as a creative person, you always get asked to do stuff for free and right. for credit. exposure, exposure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's kind of annoying and it's kind of insulting, but then again, some people ask because they just frankly don't have any money. Right. <laughs> and I try to not be a jerk about it because if someone calls and says, Oh, well, they have a budget for this and a budget for this and a budget for this, but they're not willing to spend any extra money on paying a photographer. Well, then it's like, no, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I sometimes swap the word value for money. So if there's yeah. an exchange of value, including like it makes my town a better place to be, or I'm just so excited that somebody is doing something, then there's a value proposition that's like, yeah, I'll give you some value because I see value in this. But then other times it's like, Wait, you're, this is only one way. You're just asking me to give value, but you're really not reciprocating in any way whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes 
it's because that person doesn't value what you do. Right. And, you know, I think photography, there's so many people who want to be photographers yeah. who, are, who are really desperate to get their work published and seen and their name out there. They're willing to do things for cheap or for free. And I have done that myself. I have, I have done free work. I mean, I started my first, first ever published photos were all done for free. They were done for, for exposure. (laughs) And uh, so I can't completely be a snob about that and, and say, don't ever do that. No, but that's where the value thing comes. If you found value and you found that there was an exchange of value, then that's fine. You know what I mean? I think it's just that one sided thing where people are sort of hustling and you're, it comes down to like, if you don't value it yourself, why should anybody else? So then Mm -hmm. where is the value? Like, is it actually, I mean, exposure is in fact a thing, assuming you actually get exposure for it, like assuming it actually does something for you. Yeah. And I think a lot of, a lot of, you know, people try to take advantage of photographers willingness to get exposure to yeah basically get free free work yeah pretty much any artist yeah but yeah it's not obviously it's not just photographers and and it happens to creatives all the time and i personally i like doing that once in a while because i make a lot of money when i photograph a wedding but if my friend's getting married and they're paying for it for themselves and they're putting it on in their backyard, yeah, no, I'm going to do pictures for free. Like it's, yeah. you know, or if my friend's band is playing and I'm just there and I take pictures, you know, like just use them however you want to, you know, like I, I'm happy to do that. And I, and I get, I enjoy that in a way that I, that I don't enjoy my paid work. Mm. There's a, there's a, feeling that I'm contributing to helping my friends, but also contributing to the local sort of art scene. And yeah. And it strengthens relationships. It's like using your work to strengthen for a whole different reason. Like the value of your work is now towards strengthening relationship, not toward kitching. What is this worth in monetary terms? Totally. That's really interesting. So you let me ask you my last question if if you had a million dollars or you know whatever unlimited funds what would you want to be doing wow that is a tough one honestly like i would probably want to keep doing what i'm doing but the the money would (laughs) the money would make it a lot less stressful (laughs) because you know yeah uh, that's kind of lovely. Yeah, you'd you'd still be you'd still be doing what you're doing, but you wouldn't worry about it. I mean, yeah, it, it would be it would be so fun to be able to do work and say no to jobs that you know I wasn't that interested in or that I found boring. Yeah, and I I honestly I honestly enjoy photographing weddings. I feel really lucky about that because a lot of photographers they kind of bite the bullet and they kind of grit their teeth and shoot the wedding and. They, they feel like a sellout and they're uh, doing cheesy work or something. I honest to God love it. And like, it's a long day. It's an exhausting day, but you know, a million dollars would, would mean I could pick and choose clients who are just like super chill and really fun to work with. Yeah. 
Although and it sounds like you do a little of that anyway. You were saying your website is kind of like, look, this is the style of it. It's going to winnow out. So it's kind of neat. So just a little more of that too. Yeah. And it, it's not, you know, I've been really, really fortunate in, in terms of working for cool clients and people that are, that are pretty easygoing and, and that makes for a more fun day for, for them, but it also makes yeah. for a more fun day for their vendors like me who don't have to work with a ball of stress. Who's, you know, you know, snapping at you because the napkins aren't the right color or something, you know, like I feel like those people are out there, but I've been really fortunate in that I mostly have not ever come and come across them. I've been treated really, really well. And, you know, and again, like if I had a million dollars, I could also like buy any piece of equipment I wanted to. And <laughs> I love that. Know, That's a great answer. <laughs> That would be a dream. I could spend $50,000 today on equipment like in a heartbeat. <laughs> I know exactly what I would get. Um, and, you know, that would be a blast. That's awesome. So, you know, I would definitely work less, but I would keep doing what I'm doing. And, you know, I don't really know how to do anything else. <laughs> and I would, I would definitely explore my creative photography a lot more too and and that kind of stuff maybe fix up my house a little bit too <laughs> nice nice well Matthew thank you so much for joining me today this is a really great chat it was my pleasure Janet thanks for having me on Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Nine to Thrive. We'll have a new guest next weekend. And thanks very much to Matt Cavanaugh for talking to me about his journey as a photographer in this weird time when all those technologies are changing. I appreciate it so much. You can find previous episodes and information at our website, working9to thrive.com with the number nine.